Here's a place where all of us can be safe. Our stories of transformation can be safe, and all the things we want to research are safe here. This is Safe Space with Cheyenne. I'm really excited you're here, and I hope you stick around for a while, because I've got a lot to show you before I leave Earth. I love you guys. Hello, all my friends. Welcome back to your safe space. Today, I have Jesse Kaiser. I hope I said your last name right. I should have checked that out. Perfect. You said it correct, yes. Wonderful. He is honestly a mastermind in entrepreneurship and passion and pursuit. Before we just got on, we both found out with, that we both grew up in small farms in Illinois, and we were obviously as much as we loved our small town, we definitely wanted to go out and get into the world. He has an amazing story of awareness and realization that came to somebody in a very young age. And I'm excited to present him today to not only talk to you about the conference that he is the chairman of in Las Vegas in March, 2024, but also tell a little bit of his journey of how he became such a successful person today. So thanks for joining us, Jesse. Hey, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. So tell me what you're doing now. Are you, you're still working like your latest ideal is called ideal image. Is that what you're franchising right now? So I, I'm a franchisee, mm -hmm. uh, which means I, uh, pay for a license to use the brand and, and it's, uh, proprietariness, uh, at multiple locations. So ideal image is, uh, a, it's a medical spa, but they do things like Botox and laser hair removal, uh, fillers like that. Um, and so that is actually not a franchise. It's a, a joint partnership. So it's set up very much like how a lot of um, hotels are set up where someone owns the physical hotel, but then they either pay the corporate like Hyatt or a third party management company to actually run the day to day. So they're my employees. It's uh, my rent that I'm paying. It's my equipment, but uh, I've got a third party that, and it's, and because it's, it's medicine, it's got to be a doctor that's uh, my partner in this, so to speak. So um, they manage the day-to-day. The, the -day. They deal with the patients. They deal with the staff, the medical professionals. So it, it's, a, it's a collaboration. It's, it's a little different than franchising. It's mm -hmm. not much different other than it's more passive for me, and it's less, uh, I'm less operationally challenged with it. Tell me about the other businesses that you have franchised. Yeah, so I, I'm a franchise. I've been a franchisee of Little Caesars Pizza. That was my first concept. I got opened the first one up in Marion, Illinois, March 2005. Yeah, 2005. And um, so it was a Little Caesars franchisee for almost 20 years. And uh, in January, or I'm sorry, December of 21, we sold those. Had a great opportunity. So we took that money and just kind of parlayed it into the medical spas. But we were also a Valpac franchisee. And for those that don't know what Valpac is, if you live in suburbia, there's a good chance that you get mailed a blue envelope once a month with a lot of local coupons in it. Well, someone owns that right or that territory, and they sell those coupons there. So I did that in southern Illinois for several years. And um, because of that, I interviewed other business owners, trying to get them to advertise in the, in the envelope. And I discovered that both salon owners and carpet cleaner owners uh, didn't really appreciate or understand how powerful marketing is if it's done correctly. And so I just realized, you know, if I do just as good of a job as they do, but I also understand marketing, I should, I should trump them in uh, most cases. And it's been the case. So that's how I got into sport clip haircuts and I got into OxyFresh carpet cleaning because the inspiration that the average owner didn't really understand the marketing uh, potential behind those two services. 
And because of your success and your understanding of how powerful marketing and advertising is, and especially like brand awareness and brand loyalty is what comes to mind when you say that, you were the owner of the year and on the advisory council of multiple companies. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I've had the honor of serving uh, in an advisory role capacity for Little Caesars Pizza, OxyFresh Carpet Cleaning, and, and Sport Club Haircuts. Um, I actually sat on uh, the advisory boards for a couple other organizations and other franchisors that I'm not actually a franchisee of, but they want my expertise as being a multi-unit, multi-brand. Uh, so I, I, I like I like to volunteer and I like to serve. So those aren't any paid positions. Those are just me getting to experience and get new capabilities and hopefully create value for other people. Have you thought about turning that into like a side consulting business, kind of maybe like 1099 or anything with all the expertise that you have in so many different fields? So I, I, a consultant doesn't sound uh, exciting to me because at the end of the day, you have ideas, but you don't get to execute them. And I'm an operator. I like to execute. So it would kill me to give all this great advice, uh, hopefully ed great advice, and uh, only some of it gets implemented for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. uh, it, I would much rather partner with a young startup and put some actual equity into the company and like some real skin in the game. And I'd like to mentor young CEOs and founders. That would be much more up my alley uh, and, and where I would get energy and passion from. I love that answer. Did you have a mentor when you were going to Carbondale that inspired you to go down the pathway that you are now? Yeah, I, I, I did. So, um, you know, I, I came down as a freshman and uh, the first semester there, I rushed a fraternity and there was a, a strong alumni base that lived there locally and around. And I, you know, I stuck out a little bit. I was from a really small town. Um, so I didn't, I didn't quite understand the, you know, you're not supposed to look everyone in the eye and say hello and address everyone and, and just ignore like the, the things that small town people do. I was doing that in, in the, on campus. It was just kind of noticed like people are like, Oh, he's a great guy. He says hi. And he's not afraid to talk to you. So, um, I got presented some great leadership opportunities in the fraternity that transitioned into my first and really only job I've ever had as an adult uh, besides working for myself. And there was some alumni there that uh, were, you know, pivotal. They got me into franchising. They gave me my job that I had when I was in college. And then until I retired from being a W2 employee, um, I had, you know, three or four very strong mentors. Just in college, yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. I always like to talk about the anti-idol and idol role in people's lives because we both, we all have them. And I've always, like, I'm the type of kid growing up that you could be like, hey, the stove's hot. And instead of listening to you, I'd be like, how hot is the stove, though? And, you know, sometimes I wouldn't go towards it and sometimes I would. Sure. But I'm always interested in, you know, the idols that come into people's life that really direct them on the right path. Yeah, and you know, I, I don't know, I wouldn't call my parents the anti-idol by any means because I got my work ethic from them, I got my moral compass from them, um, but both my parents, they were they were managers, uh, my mom was a school administrator, uh, she was a teacher for many years before that, my dad was a Six Sigma black belt, um, but these uh, alumni that I was learning from, they were all entrepreneurs, 
And there was a clear distinction. They had freedoms that my parents didn't have. And I wanted those freedoms. And, and so that's what drew me to it. But I mean, I wouldn't be who I was without my parents and, and the things that they taught me and the foundation. I mean, I, I'm early to every event. I mean, I was early for this, right? Uh, I, I just, being on time is being late to me. So I also learned that when I started my Texas Roadhouse Ways many, many years ago. One of the beginning things was if you're early, you're on time. And if you're on time, you're late. And that was drilled into my head from day one. Um, I did grow up in a family where some of the members would like usually be late on purpose to stuff and it would drive me insane because I have no control. I'm the kid in the car. I'm like, they right. said it starts at one. We're showing up at one thirty. What's going on? So I credit a lot of my discipline to the training program of Texas Roadhouse. I don't know if you've ever been in there, but I have, I worked my way up from server all the way to multiple management positions. And it's like running a Broadway production sometimes. Oh yeah. You got front of the house and you got back of the house for sure. Yeah. And then you have the entertainment value of like the line dancing and keeping the machine moving. I would always, we do things called alley rallies, which, you know, is basically implementing the culture and the motivation for the day. And I would be like, we're all parts of a machine. If one of us goes down, the whole empire goes down. So we really have to lean on each other. And we really have to be transparent with each other about what's going on. Like if you're in the weeds, like let somebody know we're all going to help each other. So I learned a lot about teamwork, about culture, about family, and all through a very successful company that I was extremely grateful to be a part of at such a young age. Yeah, I I often with my team members, I talk about front stage, backstage, and that uh, there's no magic of Peter Pan flying in the air if you can see him being hosted by the the rope from everyone in the back, right? So that's why, you know, having things be back of the house, stay back of the house is just as important as the front of the house staying in the front of the house. Absolutely. So let's go back all the way into Carbondale when you first decided to get into being an entrepreneur and how that really unfolded for you. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the the first thing, you know, I'm, I'm a freshman. Um, I was fortunate enough, I could have pretty much been in any fraternity I wanted, uh, but my dad was in the same fraternity at a different university, so I kind of wanted to do that. And at that particular time, that chapter was like in a transition phase where uh, they had lots of great years just recently, but a lot of those people were like fourth and fifth year seniors. And so I got to meet these guys and uh, learn from them. But there was going to be like pretty much a leadership vacuum. And so I had an opportunity, you know, as a late freshman, sophomore, junior, I, I got to step up and, and really recreate what that chapter was about with, with the help of some other guys, of course. But, but um, that was the endeavor that got me a little bit of a reputation with the alumni um, to the point where by my junior year, before my senior year, like that summer between, uh, I had two alumni come to me, like we started a technology startup company and we'd like you to come work with us. So I was like, well, I'm in college. And, uh, so they worked with me on my schedule and to be honest with you, by my senior year, the last semester, I only had classes on Tuesdays and Thursdays when my schedule worked out and I was skipping at least one of the days a week because I'd rather just work. I was really interested in a startup company. There was no manual on how this thing should happen. And it was exciting because it's like they were pretty supportive. If, if I could throw it on the wall and it stuck, I got to keep doing it. And if it didn't stick, I couldn't do it anymore. And um, 
I, so I graduated and my, my parents were like, well, you probably need to go to grad school. Like college of bachelor's is not worth anything anymore. And I was like, okay. So I, I went to grad school for about six weeks. I went from having an undergraduate degree in marketing and sociology to going to get a, a master's degree in economy or economics. And about six weeks into this, I just uh, enough of this. I'm like, I'm making way more money than all my professors combined. I mean, I was making 180,000 in, in like 2003 numbers, right? As like 23 year old, 24 year old. But it was a lot of money for me. And I was doing it because we were selling and we were selling things that I could sell pretty much internationally, but focused on the United States and Canada, uh, countries that spoke English because I didn't speak any other languages. But um, the world was really the oyster for me. And is like, I would make 200 cold calls a day. Uh, you know, prospecting and setting up appointments for my, my team to, to do the presentation of our software. I, I did that from 1998 when I graduated high school, college, to 2005 when we opened up our first little Caesar. And after that, this is what I've been doing. So. And you chose pizza. Why? Well, uh, Carbon is a college town. And uh, from 18 to 27, when I opened up my first little Caesars, uh, I ate a lot of pizza. I watched a lot of drunk college kids eat pizza. Uh, I never heard anyone really say they wouldn't eat pizza. So I thought, you know, if you've got the right location, you've got the right price point, and you, your product is good, you should do well. And the truth of the matter is, is that there was a local pizzeria. I even had my younger brother, who's my business partner. Uh, I had him working there when he was in college as his part-time job so we could understand really what kind of volume they were doing because we didn't want to over or underpay for the business and we wanted to understand all the ins and outs before we actually bought it, right? I mean, my, I come from a family of farmers and they're business owners, but that's a little different than a business owner where you've got employees that are on a farm working with you hand in hand, right? It's a little different. Uh, so I didn't know anything. Well, one of the owners of the technology company that I was working for said, you shouldn't buy that. I'm like, well, why? Like, well, you've got a lot of great capabilities and skills. You don't have any idea how to run a business, and so you should buy a franchise, and they'll teach you how to how to run the business. And I'm really grateful for that advice, and that I actually was smart enough to take it because um, my first store that we opened up was a Little Caesars. Man, the learning curve was crazy. Uh, there was things that I probably would have never picked up on or understood even to this day. And I often joke with my brother. I'm like, man, if we had bought that independent pizzeria we'd have one really successful location right now, you know, because I mean, we're hard workers and we're smart, but and, and until you have the ability to actually say, well, I know someone else that has five locations or 50 locations or a hundred locations and their volume is here and our volumes here. Let's go ask them how to get their volume up there. Right. Uh, without that masterminding, so to speak, you, you know, you are going to probably be a one location person. What were some of the pitfalls in your learning curve that you found in the earlier part of your career? Whew. Uh, money's not, uh, doesn't grow on trees, right? I had to, I had to save up uh, enough money to open up the first location, and the, the business did great right off the bat. But uh, we would keep opening because we wanted more stores, and quite honestly, we were never really at capacity as far as our abilities to, to lead or manage the, the locations. But, you know, when you don't bring in other equity partners and you're growing and you're trying to live off the revenue of it too, like you, your eyes can be much bigger than your stomach, so to speak. And so you're ready for that next location, but you're looking at the bank account and there's not enough cash building up yet 
to open up that next location. So it's just a waiting game. That's there. There was a two or three years where we'd open up a bunch and then we'd have to wait for the cash to build back up. It was just a waiting game. It's like every day you woke up, you, you ran your business, you were passionate about it, but it was like, man, I'm ready for the next location. And you just log into the bank account every day and just watch it grow, but grow slowly. So, so you can actually open up the next one. Now we're at the point where, you know, all of our debts paid off because it's been over 15 years. No one should have a loan for 15 years. I'm just saying it's been over 15 years. Uh, and so we have all this cash flow now and I can't buy or build enough locations to keep up with it now. Like that's the other side of it. So um, I could, I could buy them, but the challenge right now is just everyone is wanting to hold on to their businesses for the most part. I think that's going to break here in the next couple of years. Um, but right now, everyone, if, if they weren't getting out because of the pandemic back in 2021, they're holding steady right now. It's kind of like the housing market. Everyone's got really good interest rates on the house that they had for the last couple of years, so they're not wanting to move, right? So there's hardly any inventory out there on the market. Well, businesses are like that right now, too. You bring up some really good points. Um, I'm just going to throw on a personal story because... This was something that I recognized in a company I got in after like a few years after I left Roadhouse, I wanted to try management again. And um, I mean, I still like loved training people. That was one of my favorite things. I could literally ride for the brand and bring anybody in and be like, hey, you see this wing? Like you're here now. I'm going to show you. It's really easy to pick all this stuff up. So I got in with this concept, I don't want to say the name, and they were rocking it all over the United States. Just they used to be a food truck and now they weren't, they were blowing up everywhere. And I worked closely as a uh, corporate trainer for a split second in Texas Roadhouse because we didn't have enough openings at the time. But I was one of the main trainers at my store. It's called training coordinator when you're ahead of all of them. So you're just really in charge of bringing people into the family and then authenticating them before you would like throw them on the floor. And immediately when like the, we did our opening, I realized just the absolute mess that the training team was and the communication with corporate was like 90s technology is what it felt like you kind of send in a ticket and they'll like get back to you and they can because I don't know if they had not enough people on the support team again. And again, I had very high expectations because I worked for an extremely well oiled machine. If you ever needed anything at Roadhouse, you had people immediately. The headquarters in Louisville, Kentucky is one of the most amazing places I've ever visited as far as business. And it really inspired me to be better. But I'm slowly like noticing the red flags because I know that we had visited the same restaurant the last time we talked and you had said, yeah, I can kind of see some cracks in the holes of what's going down. And when you work in business or even in an operation format, you can see those red flags. So I continued to obviously work with them through the opening, get through the training team, get the training team out of the store and see if maybe it would level out afterwards. But I could just tell between the inauthenticity and what culture actually meant to the operator and how fast the company was growing with actually not being able to recoup that revenue immediately. I came home one night and my husband was like, what do you think, honey? And I said, dude, they're going to be out of this town by the end of the year. There's absolutely no way this store alone can sustain 
any type of increase that they're wanting for longevity. And they're like, our store just opened six weeks ago and they're wanting to put one on the other side of town. I'm like, these guys are insane. There's a difference in being like optimistic and I can do it and like delusional and really not having enough pieces to the puzzle to put it together. So I eventually left because I'm like, there's nothing for me here. Like this ship's going down and baby ain't staying on it. And by the end of the year, um, they put a note on their door on in December, like the third week of December, this, this location is permanent, permanently closed. We'll pay all the employees out till past like new years. And they shut down both locations and moved them out immediately with not even telling anybody. Wow. Yeah. So, so they, they did open the second location you're saying they did open the second location. Um, I obviously never went and visited it because I was just not interested in being even a, you know, like. What, what was the size of the population of the town? So we're in Wichita, Kansas. It is technically the biggest metropolis in Kansas because Kansas City is split between Kansas and Missouri. If not, it would be the, the second biggest city. It's also, it's not like the restaurant capital of the world. But we have so many different places to eat from mom and pops all the way up to corporate. And we also have this east side, west side split that I found out about when I worked here. So a lot of the bigger corporations that would come in knew that they would be able to increase their profitability if they would one, start on one end of town and then, you know, grow that brand. And within the next couple of years, they would realize if you opened a franchise on the east side, you'll get people like first time guests coming in and we'll go and do the first time guest spiel with them. And they're like, oh, you can keep that. We're from the West side. We just came to check this out. But if you build it on the West side, we'll be happy to come eat there. Like it's just absolutely known like they're not coming over here. And to me from being in the country where everything's 30 minutes away, I thought that was right. completely ludicrous. It made no sense to me. I don't mind a little 30 minute road trip through the city looking at skyscrapers to go to food. But these people were adamant. So because of That's the way- not common i mean uh, evansville indiana is the same way they have an east side west side so yeah it's really big like that here and again i really wasn't used to that because again like i was in kansas city but we had like three or four roadhouse locations but you had your loyalty base in liberty missouri like you knew all of your people it really was very family oriented so again, moving to a completely different town and dealing with all of these people that were like, yes, I love your concept, but I'm never coming back over here because it's not on the West side, honestly blew my mind. Talk about a learning curve. So they were adamant because they knew about the split immediately when the concept came in and decided, okay, well, within like a year, we're just going to go ahead and throw another one up because they were acting like they just had I mean, they were really acting like money grew on trees is probably the best thing I can say. Um, so besides my long story of, wow, I'm really glad I got out of that business and saw the writing on the wall. What are the writing on the wall that you have seen, whether in businesses that you've been a part of or even things that you've seen in other businesses that can really project to you that it's not going to go as well as people project it to be? I think the number one indicator is how they view their employees or their team members. You know, um, I, I, I visit, I get asked to visit and what it's called discovery days. 
So when a franchisor is wanting prospective franchisees to come, they come out to their corporate office, they meet the staff, they go through a day of like, here's how marketing's done, here's how this is done, site selection, things like that. And, you know, I, I went on a tour and did a lot of discovery days this, this summer. And uh, I, I don't want to paint a picture that they were all like this because I actually found a couple that were really pro-employee and it was exciting to be with them. But, the, you know, I think the brands or, or companies that are challenged the most are people that think that employees are a liability and not an asset. I mean, that's the number one red flag for me. And as a trainer, I'm sure you feel the same way. Yes, I was taught, um, again, from day one, we're, we're not in the food industry, we're in the people industry, we just happen to be serving them food. Right. And as, like, for us, see how involved I still am in the company? Like, I've never really left Roadhouse, even though I don't work for them. That's how well, like, their culture has maintained and even a part of my identity. But when you're becoming a server they teach you that everything is your responsibility, but this is your main focus. And we get a three table section so you can really focus on the needs of your guests. And it's sold to you like, how would you serve your family? And then you'd be like, oh, well, I would do this, I would do this, I would do this. And you're like, okay, everybody that sits at your table is your family. So I had plenty of characters because I've always loved to be entertained while I was eating, but I also know that the amount of personalities that I'm able to chameleon myself to for whatever person sat at my table, I was able to really give them a show or just serve them their food. I just let them let me know in about the first 30 seconds and meeting them. So as soon as these characters would sit down at my table, I would identify who's the mother, who's the father, who's the grandma, and who's the sibling. And not only like trying to memorize them by seat one, blue hat, seat two, red shirt, I would also just really try to figure out how they wanted me to connect with them. So I would be able to not only give them the best service, but make them feel really comfortable and wanting to come back. But also since servers do get paid um, a, a weird pay that we won't get into, you really are working for your own tip at the time. So I'm working extra hard for the company and I'm still working hard for my own company which was that three table section where I really, really, really had to sell myself. Sure. And it got to the point where I got really, I got really good relationship with the host and, and I like over time I would see like, what was the better tippers who I was more compatible with. And I would be like, I'm in the bar section. Do not set a family with me in the bar section, please. Because they're just here to eat dinner. That's what the family sections for. This is for people that just got off work and need someone to talk to. That's what we're doing. Oh, it's hunting season. I only want to see camouflage in my section and I only want to see pie planners. And then I would go back to the kitchen and I would talk to all of my guys on the line and I would be like, you see my ticket, right? And they're like, yeah, I was like, like, let's just make sure that those are like pristine presentation and everything is always taken care of. They're like, yep, we got you. So like I did figure out like almost like back channels to make sure that my stuff was really good, even being a part of the team. But I also was still very young in my 20s. And I like how in the story before you said there's a salesman trap where you can get into getting these big commission checks and just blowing them away because you'll go make another sale and you can get more money. But instead you put it in a savings account. And I definitely just acted like money grew on trees because... When we opened, we had record sales. We had lines out the door. 
And I was just like this month, like I'm always just going to be able to come and grab hundreds of dollars a night doing this. And on top of this, I'm like line dancing and taking like rib orders and stuff. It was extremely eye-opening for me going into that company and has taught me a ton and I'm very grateful for it. Back to your story. So <laughs> had to it had to interject that. So we go through all of these different companies where you're learning to franchise, you're learning learning curves, ins and outs. A lot, I guess the thing that really inspires me about you is a lot of people that I've met on an entrepreneur path like you, they don't really um, say that their one passion is to be an operator. So why is it that you love so much being an operator and being very hands-on besides just being the guy that comes in, throws a license at everybody and says, you know, I'll be back to check your P&L later and make sure everything's good to go. Well, you know, full disclosure, I seldom uh, visit my actual brick and mortar locations. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that I'm not in contact with employees on a daily basis. It's normally done from Starbucks on a laptop and a cell phone. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I'd rather, I want to be, I don't want to be in charge. I just want to be in control. Mm -hmm. Right. So, uh, that's why the operator part is there. I, I want to be in control. I definitely don't need to be in charge. I've got great district managers that are definitely in charge. And, uh, I was in Germany for two weeks. I was speaking at the German franchise expo and, uh, did some sightseeing too. And I never got a phone call for two weeks, never got a phone call. I come home and there was issues, but all the issues got handled about 95% of the way I would have told them how to handle it. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm very grateful for that, but there, there's reasons why that's like that, right? It's uh, development, it's choosing the right people. You talked about family, like thinking of everyone that you're serving as like family. I, I always coach my managers is when you're on the fence about hiring someone, it's the Thanksgiving table question. Would you sit across from them at Thanksgiving dinner and enjoy it? If you would, hire them. If you don't, please don't hire them. They're not compatible with your culture. Very true. I'm glad that you brought up culture because we're about to get in some tips and tricks for how to treat employees properly or build a proper business. In the words of Jesse Kaiser, I should say. So we talked about the asset of your employees and they're sure. really an investment in your business. They're not a liability. And I have worked with operators on both sides where employees are complete liabilities, they're low man on the totem pole and blah, 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 versus the man with a foresight into what he's doing and the investment that he put in his employees completely amplified his, his profits over. So is there a way for you to really find an indicator in an interview if someone doesn't get culture at all and is just kind of into the humdrum of finding like has no brand loyalty is probably the best way I would sure. say. Well, you know, the brand, the reason you probably have brand loyalty is because someone who hired you and trained you, uh, inspired you and developed you to the point where you really liked that. Right. Mm -hmm. I, 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 that's gotta be the reason why you had that brand loyalty. So I don't think brand loyalty starts day one or, or it is solidified. I should say day one, but it can start day one for sure. Um, you know, we have a philosophy of, you know, if you want to do something fast, you got to do it by yourself. Committees are terrible for that stuff. But if you want to go somewhere far, you can't do it alone. You got to do it with other people. So that's part of our culture. And the other thing is I've got four rules for all the leaders in my company. This is a store manager, a district manager, 
someone in my office, me. I have to live by this too. And they go in order of uh, importance too. The number one priority or responsibility, we should say, the number one responsibility of a leader in our company is that they must protect the gratitude. So that is the culture. Okay. If the culture and the gratitude is not there, if you don't have your team members happy and thankful that the place that they work, nothing's broke, or if it's broke, the guy fixes it right away. You know, if they're not grateful for that, they're probably not going to be grateful for the customers and they need to be grateful for the customers and they need to be grateful for the other team members. Like, hey, they're pretty selective of who they bring on the team. They don't bring in bad apples. And when they do, we're all quick to point out that's a bad apple. Please get rid of them because no one bats a thousand, right, as mm -hmm. far as selecting people. The second one is to protect the vision. And I'm sure Texas Roadhouse had a mission statement for us. Uh, the vision is our mission statement. So they must protect that. Are we doing things that make that mission statement more a reality or less of reality? It's a binary question. Everything we do, okay? The third one is constantly challenge the status quo. So if you have an X amount of ticket average at Texas Roadhouse, that's not, I mean, that's great. Let's celebrate it, but that's not it. There's probably another 10 cents we can get on that, that ticket. And that 10 cents is not going to come from forcing a customer to buy something. It's getting a customer excited and emotionally invested and getting that extra appetizer or that extra drink because they're celebrating something, right? Absolutely. So that's number three. Um, and then number four is constantly develop leaders around you. And it goes back to that thing I said, that if you want to go far, you can't do it by yourself. So I, I live by those four things, and that's why when I was in Germany, I didn't get any phone calls because I'm constantly trying to develop people around me because I want to go far, and I cannot do it by myself. That's also a very humble statement, too, because I, I find a lot of people really, whether the success that they get or an arrogance that could come with the success or even money, they're just like, oh, I can do this, I can do this. But for you to understand it really takes a team of people to do it. It just shows a humbleness in you that I really enjoy. Well, I appreciate that. You know, and the other thing, too, is like they talk about the 80-20 rule. Uh, and, and here's another way. That, so I've got a lot of friends that were like, yeah, but no one could do it as good as me. Fair enough. You're an expert at it. Okay. What it, but if you hired someone and trained them correctly and they were a good fit for your company and they can do 80% as good as you just by showing them what it is, they're like, yeah, okay. Now you have two or three of those people doing 80%. That's more than you're 100% by yourself. But let me ask you this. Where would you be if you were at 80% of someone else's capability, but you were getting coached by that person? Would you eventually surpass them? You would. And I can tell you this, in, in small clips as an example, uh, from day one, I was the person that was in there coaching the managers directly, coaching the team members directly, the stylist in the chair. And I had good numbers. But when, the further I get removed from doing that in the store, the better the numbers get. And it's because I'm getting other people that that's their unique ability getting in there and they're passionate about it. They've been trained and they know the expectations. But the other thing is, is that when you're in it, you're in the thick of it and I'm not, I'm reserved. I'm, I'm pulled back from it. So when they call me stressed out or with a challenge that they don't know how to answer, the answer is almost always very clear to me because I'm not sitting in it. Right. When you're not, when you're sitting in it, it's like you can't see what the box says when you're inside the box. So uh, I, that's where the power of working with other people is, is that there's a coaching, mentoring thing 
um, going on where you can actually get someone who may not be as good at something as you initially, but you're going to get them to be better than you if you give them the coaching because they're going to bring their own passion, their own insight, but then you get to collaborate with your insight and passion and you charge them up even more and you get, you get way better output and they're excited because they feel like they're supported. But a lot of times the people that say, oh, but I could do it better, they're not getting support, right? They're grinding and they're grinding and they're grinding and there's just something special about them. Well, let's them keep going. But I tell you, when you've got a cheering section, you go further. I've ran marathons, and uh, it's those last miles. It's the cheering that gets me going across the finish line. It's it, it's not uh, that I've trained for it or I'm just excited for the beer at the end of the race. It's, uh, the, it's the cheering for people that don't even know me. They're just like, hey, this guy, just like all the other thousands of people running this thing, they're doing something that most people don't do. And it's the cheering. Could you also say... I heard this phrase before and I've used it. Um, if you want to be promoted, you need to replace somebody with some, replace yourself with someone who's better than you. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that's a conundrum that I, I, I run into. Uh, the mentality is that, you know, you'll get some managers that don't want to hire people better than them um, because they're afraid of job security. I'm like, the worst thing that you could do for job security is be stagnant with me. You know, you need to grow. You can grow in your location. You don't have to get promoted to be a district leader, but you need to grow. And I need to see that your team members are, because in the salon business, they're all commission-based, right? And so, or performance-based, I should say. So uh, you gotta, you got to get their performance better from, from the year before. That's how they make more money. And, you know, that's one of our rules with my district managers is it doesn't matter what we do. At the end of the day, you've got to figure out how everyone underneath you is making more money than they were the year before. That's it. That's it. And it, some years, maybe it's a penny. Other years, it's dollars per hour, you know, difference. But we've got to have that forward momentum going. So let's get into controllables in a business, mm -hmm. right? Because there's things you can control and there's things that you can't control. And as far as money, not emotion, we'll skip the emotional conversation. Sure. Um, as far as controllables and really digging into those for anybody in business or in entrepreneurship, what are some of the tips and tricks in the controllables that you can say have helped you over the years really bring that P&L in line for you? Well, I tell you what, I, let me go back and uh, let me answer that question a little bit differently and then we can talk about the P&L. Okay. okay? Uh, I've got a wonderful quote. I didn't come up with it. Uh, Lee Brower did. It is, uh, we're going to systemize the predictable so we can humanize the unpredictable. So in our company, we've got a rule of thumb. If something happens more than once, let's figure out a procedure for it or a system or a process, something to do. So when it happens again, we already know what we need to do. That way there's no confusion. It's the one-offs. It's, it's, it's when something's going on that's never happened before. That's when you need your human, um, humanization put towards it. And stop going by a checklist or, hey, you know, the, the uh, employee handbook says X, Y, Z. Well, yeah, but they've been with you for five years and never called in sick once. And then they didn't show up for a shift. You know, do you write them up or do you find out, hey, what the hell's going on? Are you okay? You know, humanize it because it could be, I mean, they could have found out that their kid has cancer and they just could not function. I mean, that would be debilitating to me as a parent, mm -hmm. right? And so then you come back to work the next day and you're written up for not showing up. I'm like, that's not a place I want to work, you know? 
the truth is, those people typically, if they've been with me five years, they normally call. But I mean, you've got to have some. You've got to have some humanity to that. Uh, and I think that's why, and how you become an employer of choice is that you you have rules and you have procedures. But when they're one offs, when they're things that don't happen all the time, you need to just face it, address it on head on, and, and deal with it right there. And when I say deal with it, it's you know find out what's going on, get the whole story. Don't rely on a checklist. I like that you said humanize it though, because I definitely found myself doing that in my earlier days with people and employees, and I had a very old school manager that was my mentor in the beginning. And he was extremely cutthroat. It was just like, show up for your shift. I don't care if your arms cut off type guy, you know, he could do everything. He'll always do everything. Cause he's the one who can do it the best. He would sleep in the booth. If that meant the success of the store, like very drill sergeant hard in my opinion. And I came in and I obviously saw the people I was working with and I did humanize many situations like that where I would have to honestly maneuver my staff around in a way. Um, one of the biggest examples came in, I had a really strong employee come in one day and you could just tell she was completely down and out and not herself. And I, I love the idea of, you know, checking in with yourself before you clock in. Like we were told we had to be at like 110, 120% so our staff could be at 100. And is that gonna happen every day? No, it's unrealistic, but I'm gonna try the best I can. Um, but I would notice when people were clocking in what, what percentage they were clocking in with. And, and before they would, I would be like, Hey, I noticed you're a little off today. Do you just want to come to the office and just kind of talk to me about it. So she went back to the office and she's like, yeah, I'm so sorry. I came in. She's like, it's just, it's the anniversary of my brother's death. And every, you know, every day I just, I don't really know if I'm going to be able to do it today. And honestly, when we talk about like the front of house and the back of house, if you're a front of house employee, your issues are supposed to stay outside of the door and definitely in the back of house, right? So um, from a business perspective, I was like, I know that I can't have you greeting tables like this. It's not good for the guests. It's not good for the experience, but it's definitely not good for you. So um, I'm going to go ahead and send you home. I'm not going to write you up. You're not in trouble. I'm just going to take care of you because you need somebody to take care of you today. So I'm also gonna have you slip out the back door so it doesn't become the drama of the day and nobody can do their work because they wanna know why I took you off the team sheet. And I was scolded by my boss because I went a server down for the time and I explained to him that she was not capable at the time based on her emotional state to be able to do it based on the circumstances, it's completely understandable and will be fine. I'll pick up the slack if needed. And he could not fathom taking care of people in that capacity. It just was not a part of him. So we were really like old school, new school. Like I was like a hippie that came into corporate and he was like corporate that was like, just listen to me and you'll succeed. So I had many moments like that where I would really humanize situations to the point where I had a box of chocolate in the freezer and if people were going down, I'd be like, come in the freezer with me because you can't cry in a freezer also. So if they're like, the table is so mean to me, I'm like, I got this. And we would run into the freezer. I'd hand them a full of chocolate chips. I'm like, okay, you have 15 to 30 seconds to get it all out and tell me what's going on. And then they'd be like, <laughs> and then they would notice that they can't cry anymore. And I'd be like, eat the chocolate. Yeah, eat it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I would like say something positive, tell them how good they are, whatever I need to do. I'm like, you got this? Okay. I was like, so do you have rent due? And they're like, yeah. I was like, let's go get that freaking rent money, man. And then we would right. just run out of that freezer like we were like football players on a field. And those were like 
the holes in the dam that I was running around plugging all day long. And I will say, I've never been an operator or an entrepreneur in your position, but I was a manager that absolutely thrived in plugging all those holes and running around and helping all those different places that were lull in those experiences. Have you been in situations like that, like as far as any complaints or issues that you had to deal with with your direct managers? Like, have you dealt with them in the same manner? manner or how do you go about really addressing oh yeah yeah um yeah i I normally just get my district managers are the ones that are the most vulnerable with me Mm -hmm. uh because we interact with each other the most but i mean i've got long-term managers that have been with me for eight years yeah they can call me and and they can gripe uh they're not only griping about me for sure but they do feel comfortable enough if they don't think something's being addressed correctly they'll just bring it to my attention which i absolutely love uh, because with as many locations I have, I, I, it, it's, it's understood. If you don't see something being right, it's your responsibility to be a squeaky wheel. Because I don't like squeaky wheels. I like them to go away. But I like to fix the problem and not fix the squeaky wheel. Mm-hmm. You know, so the only way I can get someone to stop being a squeaky wheel is to fix the problem for them, right? Mm-hmm. Or help them fix the problem many times. Or identify maybe they're a bad apple, you know, which often happens. Uh, it happens, but you know, a lot of times, look, we're, we're, we're both in the food business or have been, um, there's plenty of applications coming in. It's a retention issue mm-hmm. in almost every business. You're just not holding on to people long enough because you're not humanizing your relationship. It's a relationship business, you know? Uh, and that's what, that's what I tell everyone, like in my salons, I said, we're in the relationship business. There's a relationship between me and you. You and your uh, fellow team members, and a relationship between the client and you and your chair. And I'm like, we we need to always strengthen all those relationships. And the only way you strengthen a relationship is you make deposits into the relationship account, right? Not withdraws. It's okay to pull a withdrawal when you really need it, but if you're not putting those in. So, as an example, someone that worked with me for five years and never showed up late or never called in, they put a lot of deposits in there. So they're going to cash out some of that with me. If it's your first week with me and you call in twice, you're bankrupt. You know, it's that simple. Mm -hmm. I had the manager that really mentored me and, you know, even moved me to Kansas City to start my management career. Um, When I would work with him, he would go, for every 10 favors you do for me, you get one from me. Okay, work hard. (laughs) And that was always our joke going down the line, but. I love that you brought that up. I love that you humanize the employee. Um, you still have obviously the strict boundaries with, you know, new employees. They really do have to prove themselves. I know things come up in the world. And for me, it was the same. It was, you could look at the sheet and you could see how much money you were doing in training people and losing people, um, how high your percentage was for turnover. Um, when I took over a store in Wichita, they had about a 200% turnover rate when I came in. And I think I was hired again because I was a hippie and I loved people. So I think that was my strong suit is I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get your numbers figured out in the first year or two. I'm like, but I can definitely help your training team and fix your culture. That's my passion. That's where I'm going to flourish. You're going to have to help me with all of the other things, or you're going to have to let me build a team where I can delegate these things to people I find passionate about. So how good are you at delegating? And if you weren't at one time, how did you 
loosen the reins on things to be able to trust people to do their jobs that you hire them for? Uh, you know, I am absolutely self-proclaimed as the laziest, ambitious person you'll ever meet. Uh, so <laughs> I, I don't like to do a whole lot of anything after the first time. Like I have, I'm, I'm zoned in. If it's a first time experience, I want to be involved in it. I want to understand it. But as soon as I've done it, I don't watch reruns. And so I have to delegate and I have to develop constantly. Yeah, there's, uh, yeah, I am excited about one-offs, uh, one th things that are first times. I want to be there. Doesn't It doesn't even have to be a big thing. It could be a little thing, right? I'll drive to that location. I'll do whatever it is. I want to learn about it. And then once I've learned about it, it's my job to teach someone else about it, right? Mm -hmm. That's kind of so why the show is here, too, honestly. I can say five years ago, I never would have imagined myself hosting a podcast and wanting to explore so many different avenues of health and consciousness and religion and even business. And here I am now, and I'm like, we have a lot of similarities because I felt the same way. Delegation was a very um, positive part of my management as well. But I absolutely love finding people and developing them but it was because probably like you, when you found your mentor, when my mentor found me, they were pulling things out of me that I really had blind spots about. And they're like, you're a little rough around the edges here, but you have the spark over here. Let's really, you know, let's throw some wood on the fire here and let's develop that. Yeah. And I think that uh, I got to go through it in my head. It's either the four or the five D's. So you're going to do it. You're going to drop it. You're going to defer it. Or you're going to delegate it. Mm -hmm. Or you're going to discuss it. That's the fifty. So, uh, whenever whenever there's a, a task or a situation, it's always got to be one of the, one of those conversations. You know, what are we doing? Mm -hmm. You're really full of advice. I don't know if you've um, written an ebook or a book in general, but I highly recommend you do. Uh, I appreciate that. I am I, I have zero original ideas in my head. I just have a real unique ability listening to other people's great ideas and saying, you know, that little nugget that you said. And that our conversation, that one sentence is so powerful, I'm going to share it with as many people as I can. Uh, so that, everything you're hearing from me, I've had great mentors in my life. Uh, some, some know me well. Some have no idea who the hell I am because I listen to them on podcasts or watch them on YouTube or, or whatever or read their books. So, um, yeah, I mean, you can, you can get that motivation, that inspiration anywhere. You just got to look for it. Uh, a great quote I heard is the uh, – the eyes only see and the ears only hear what the mind is looking and hearing for or listening for. That is so you, you just got to know. And then, you know, about the uh, red car paradox, right? If you see, if what is it? If you see a red car, if you think about a red car, then you'll see red cars everywhere. Is that? You're, you're pretty close. If you were to tell me how many red cars you saw on your way to dropping the kids off at school today, you'd probably say, I don't, I don't know. You'd have to guess. Yeah. But if I told you I was going to give you a hundred bucks for everything that you found, ooh, they're going to be everywhere and you're going to count them. You're going to see them everywhere. But those red cars are always around you everywhere, right? And those are opportunities too. So write down what you're wanting to do, what you're wanting to learn, and it will appear. That's very true. I can say that happened to me when I bought a Honda Civic a few years ago. And I swore. Everyone else is driving Honda Civics, right? I swore. I just had never seen the car. I was like, oh, that's such a sleek, sexy car. I could definitely get a speeding ticket at that. Yeah, I'll take that. And then I started driving it around. And I was like, there's, there's like 1,500 Honda Civics on Kellogg today. This is insane how it happens. But I think yep. it's also a really good 
um, lesson for like the power of the mind and the power of focus and the power of intention and putting things into action. That's what I found with like simple moments like that. When you talk about the golden nuggets or even seeing through on a deeper level that things really like people have zero awareness, uh, the wisdom that kind of can come out of them at any time. Very true. So on to this conference that is happening in March. Tell us about this. Yeah. Uh, so it's uh, the multi-unit franchise conference. It's in Vegas. This year it's March 19th through the 22nd. It is, uh, it is my favorite conference and I attend lots of conferences. Um, okay. So if you're in franchising and you want to aspire to have multiple locations, you already have multiple locations. Uh, this is the conference you go to. There's three types of people that should attend. The first one is people that have a brand that they love and they want to learn how to grow more quicker and more efficiently. This is a conference for you. You'll learn those secrets and tricks. You already got a great brand and you're ready to move on and have a second brand or a third brand. This is the place to go find that brand because all the franchisors, all the big ones, they're here. They're here and they want to meet with you. Third, you're happy with the number of units you got. You're not looking for another brand, but boy, you'd like to make more money out of your current existing uh, locations and have more free time and things like that. There's entrepreneurs there that are in that same boat that have been there 10, 15 years before you that will share with you everything that you want to know. So between the great keynote speakers like Jim Collins, the author of Good to Great, he's the keynote speaker this year. Between the keynote speakers, the panels uh, where it's other franchisees that are getting up and talking about their learning experiences. And then there's, I call it the best happy hour in Vegas. There's two days from three to six where it's hors d'oeuvres and open bar and you get to go and meet all these other franchise brands and interact with all the other franchisees. And you could be in a booth looking at a new burger concept and there's another person that is in a brand that's not like yours but similar. And all of a sudden you have a lot of commonality and you're like, hey, so how do you handle this? How are you doing that form? How are you doing this? And all these things are shared experiences. I mean, <clears throat> I've picked up very good friends. I've picked up business partners uh, from this conference. Um, I've picked up two brands myself from this conference. So I've been attending it for 10 years. And last year when they asked me to be the chair for this year, I was extremely honored. And I said, I will do everything I can to promote this conference because I wholeheartedly believe if you're in franchising, this is the conference to be in. I love it. I'm so glad you reached out to me and we were here today. I've learned so much from you and I know my guests have too. Well, thank you. I really appreciate your time. Yeah. And all my friends, you know, you just click that description down below and you'll be able to find all of Jesse's information and get your ticket to this conference if you want to up level the next steps in your life and in your business. Before we head out of here and introduce today's music, what is your advice to anybody listening about how to really take that next step, whether in confidence in management or confidence in themselves? You know, here, here's the best thing I will tell you, uh, because I, I tell this to my uh, soon-to-be 13-year-old daughter all the time, that the quality of your life is directly proportionate to the number of quality relationships you have. Right. And so the world is full of competition of people looking to be interesting or trying to be interesting. There's no competition to be interested. So put the phone down, look someone in the eye, have a genuine conversation, ask them how they're doing. You can form amazing relationships that are both be personal, professional, 
uh, spiritual, whatever, you're going to have a higher quality relationship and more relationships if you focus on being interested in the other person versus trying to be interesting and get their attention. Very true and great advice. Again, I thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Hey, and don't forget, you're welcome back anytime. You want to come on and teach some more? Maybe write that book we talked about. You come back. Well, I, are we done recording? Nope, not yet. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. I, I, have, I have some news I'll share with you when we're done recording. Wonderful. Let me finish right. up. I have to show our friends this beautiful music. Friends, before we get out of here, we have got somehow from Nightcap today. I'm going to give you a little snippet, but head over to that safe space playlist on Spotify and get your playlist today. Just sweet talking treacherous pleading I said that I don't feel the same Ooh honey, you may be starting, but if I don't find a match You broke my clock cause it don't don't you dare wasting time in a mess Don't play the victim when you were just wishing that it would Somehow. Don't play the victim when you were just wishing that it would work out somehow. Don't play the victim.